Dueling Eagles, written by Chad Clabo, read by Derek Durlam, produced by Studio Conundrum, copyright 2017, Chad Clabo. Chapter 31 Lisa told Ned that the decision wasn't difficult. So many times she had cursed the fact that a simple piece of paper was all that kept her from returning to El Paso after the Immigration Reform Act had become law. Now she had a signed presidential order that declared her a citizen of the United States. After speaking with the president and before heading back to El Paso, Ned and Lisa had a brief conversation with Senator Andres. The senator told them that Congress had wasted no time in passing a declaration of war against Mexico. The declaration authorized the president to take any and all actions necessary to regain American lands and to stabilize the border and the government of Mexico until such time as peace was established either by treaty with Mexico or by resolution of Congress. The declaration had not been unanimous, but won by overwhelming margins in both chambers. Most of the dissent was from the northeastern and northwestern states, but even the representatives from those areas fell mostly in line. The senator also told Ned that he didn't have to go back to El Paso if he didn't want to, and that he really didn't appreciate the president stealing his chief aide out from under him. After they said their goodbyes, Ned and Lisa found themselves back on the same military plane that had flown them into Austin just a few hours earlier. The only difference was that the plane was now nearly full of United States Army reservists. So what exactly is the plan here? Lisa asked Ned. That depends, said Ned. Will we be able to convince your brother to turn against the CLA? I don't know. He always seemed pretty loyal to them. At least as much as he's ever been loyal to anything. I used to think he would be loyal to me, but when the army gave him more responsibility, he didn't seem to care anything about what I had to say. Still, we've been given quite a lot to offer him. He'll get a better deal than I did if he'll take it. Lisa paused a moment. Never underestimate the power of greed. That certainly isn't a ringing endorsement of human integrity, said Ned. It wasn't supposed to be. If you think he can be reasoned with, the best course of action will be to find him and convince him to come with us. Do you know how we can find him? There are several possibilities. The headquarters that we escaped from is one. He could also be out with one of the fighting groups, in which case it will be a lot more difficult. I think what we should do is start at my restaurant. He probably won't be there, but the security won't be as high as if we go to the headquarters, and I might find someone there who I can trust who will tell me where he is. That sounds like a good plan. Where exactly is the restaurant? It's east of the headquarters, not even a kilometer near the Viaducto Diaz Ordaz. All right, then, said Ned. That's where we'll start. I don't know where our point of entry will be yet. We'll have to wait for the general's briefing before we make further plans. Maybe we should try and get some more sleep. It might be a long night tonight. I'm not really tired. She paused a moment. Ned, what do you think about all this? What do you mean, asked Ned, all of this? I mean, the war, the deportations... The relationship between our two countries. Our two countries, said Ned. Don't forget, the United States is your country now, too. Yes, I know. But I'll always be from Mexico. Even if I never go back after today. I know what you mean, said Ned. So you want my thoughts on the relationship between the United States and Mexico? I guess it's a good thing we have some time here, because that could take a while to explain. You know that I work for a senator that was at the forefront of the Immigration Reform Act, so you must realize some of my political leanings. Yes, said Lisa. 
But I also know that political opinions can be complicated, and from the time I broke you out of that prison, you never seemed like someone who hates Mexicans. You think that everyone who wants to control immigration hates immigrants? No, said Lisa. Of course not. But it seems like the people who wanted that law passed wanted to punish Mexicans, and it really has only seemed to hurt Mexico. There were consequences here as well, said Ned. Almost everything that was related to cheap labor shot up in price. The cost of domestic produce almost doubled, and the small farm organic farmers made out like bandits, since they were about the only ones who didn't need to raise their prices. Construction, household, and service industries suffered too. I know for you things cost more. For us in Juarez, we were destitute and sometimes starving. You're right. Mexico was definitely hit harder than the United States. When most of your trade is with one country and that one country stops trading, it's going to hurt. And I'm sorry. So you didn't approve of the trade embargo? No, said Ned. I never thought that was a good idea, but there are those who thought that any transit across the border in El Paso, even that of goods, would make a path for illegal entry. So you did approve of stopping the illegal entry? Yes, I've always felt that any immigration or migrant workers program should be approved by Congress and therefore lawful in its nature. It just always rubbed me the wrong way that people were entering the country illegally. We are, after all, a nation of laws. But it isn't as simple as just saying that. My own mother often tells me that Mexicans are hard workers and she doesn't see why they shouldn't come here if they want to work. And what do you tell her? That it isn't as simple as that. When we fail to control the border, we don't only get the honest, hard-working Mexicans. We also get people who would certainly be turned away if they were to try and come into the country legally. I've always felt that one of the major problems is that we don't allow enough migrant workers into the country. If we had a migrant workers program that brought in millions of Mexican workers that could stay in the country for up to a year and then return home for several months before coming back, that would solve a lot of problems on both sides of the border. Yes, said Lisa. I've heard your senator talk about this plan. Do you think it will happen? A couple of days ago, said Ned, I would have said yes. I think we are on track to pass the legislation in the next few months, and we would have started bringing in migrants early next year. We could have even started diverting people who were scheduled for deportation, but I think this business in El Paso has changed everything. Changed everything. Lisa thought about this for a moment. So how do you think we got here? I mean, what went so wrong that the United States felt it had to start deporting people by the hundreds of thousands? I'd say it's been building for a long time, and a lot of it doesn't even have so much to do with the immigrants. I think a lot of the conflict has more to do with the people in this country not agreeing on what to do about the problem. Some people not even acknowledging that there was a problem. You had some people who wanted to make certain that there was no illegal entry and wanted to deport everyone who had come into the country illegally. Then there were other people who thought that our country had a duty to take care of anyone who could make it to our soil, and they didn't want to send anyone back under any circumstances. That was actually the most popular notion in some parts of the country, and you even had some cities that set themselves up as so-called sanctuary cities. I know all about the sanctuary cities, said Lisa, for all the good they did in the end. It is true that once the administration decided to start enforcing federal laws, there wasn't much that the local statute could do to get in the way. Anyway, there were also a lot of people on both sides who weren't so caught up in the issue, but, like me, didn't like the idea of people flouting the law so deliberately. It wasn't even so much the illegal entry as it was the other Americans who didn't seem to want to enforce the law. 
I think that the people who were so opposed to any kind of immigration reform eventually provoked a backlash from those who wanted the law enforced, and immigration reform ended up becoming the most important issue in national politics. I guess that makes sense, said Lisa, but it sounds like quite a lot of guesswork. I suppose it does at that. In the end, the two sides just wouldn't work together on any kind of reform. Then, after it blew up into such a big issue, the pro-reform politicians were elected, and this is what we're left with. I certainly think it would have been better to integrate something like the Senator's Migrant Worker Program into the Reform Act. It could have avoided a lot of the deportations if people had signed up to be migrant workers and voluntarily returned to Mexico with the understanding that they would be able to come back every year. But people were impatient for change, so the Reform Act was passed, the border crossings were shut down, and the deportations began. Do you think there was anything that could have avoided this? asked Lisa. Other than the two sides working together sooner, I don't think it could have been avoided. But then the two sides were never going to work together. You had one side that thought the other side didn't care at all about the law or defending the nation's borders. Then you had the other side that thought the first side was clearly xenophobic and completely overreacting to a problem that didn't really seem to matter. Both sides started at unreasonable positions, and you can't have a reasonable argument with someone starting out with an unreasonable position. So you think we were doomed from the beginning? Not doomed, but it does seem like it was almost inevitable. The underlying problem has always been the economic insecurity that people face in Mexico. Any time there has ever been a way to pick up and try to move and make your life better, some people will pick up and move. Nothing short of stabilizing the Mexican economy to the point that it was on par with that of the United States would have kept people from trying to come across the border in such numbers. You know, I used to tell people that the United States should have just kept all of Mexico at the end of the Mexican-American War. Then we wouldn't have hardly any of the problems we have today. You know, one government, one economy. You don't still think that would have been a good idea? Well, not realistic, anyway. I once had a conversation with a history professor about my idea. She said that it never could have happened because the United States wouldn't have wanted so many brown, Catholic, Spanish-speaking people as citizens. Do you think that's true? I think there's some truth to it, but it really got me thinking. So I looked into other reasons why the United States might not have wanted all of Mexico, and came to the decision that it was mostly about slavery. Slavery? Yeah. Keep in mind that the Mexico-American War was only about 15 years before the American Civil War, and that slavery had already been completely abolished in Mexico. Mexico had about 20 states back then, but allowing Mexico to come into the United States as even 10 new states would have greatly upset the balance of power. If the Mexican states had sided with the free northern states, the slave states would have been completely outnumbered in both houses, and it's unlikely that any candidate from a slaveholding state could have ever been elected president. So slavery is the reason that Mexico isn't part of the United States? Lisa sounded skeptical. Well, said Ned, that's my opinion anyway. What do you think? I don't know that much about American history, and that's not how they taught the Mexican-American War where I went to school, but I don't think it could have just been about slavery. She paused for a moment and then looked at Ned. I think maybe your history professor was right. The Americans didn't want the Mexicans to be part of the United States, just like they don't today. Chapter 32 After landing at the airfield, Ned and Lisa were met once again by Private Phillips and his transport vehicle. You know, Phillips, said Ned once they were on their way, if you weren't otherwise engaged, I think I'd have to hire you out as my personal driver. 
Does that mean I should ask you for a job once my enlistment is over? Let's take this one day at a time, Private. Where are we off to now? To see another familiar face, the Private replied. Captain Smith will be briefing you on your mission. I see. No meeting with the General, then? No, sir. The General is coordinating the counteroffensive, which has already sort of begun. What do you mean? asked Ned. I was told we were going in ahead of the assault. Yes, sir, I believe you're going in ahead of the main assault, but we've already been working to take back the green zone. It hasn't really been that difficult. Our troops have been flooding in all day from across Texas, and the CLA never really moved very far across the border. They're mostly spread out along the river, except where they're holding the dams and the deportation port. The port is where we'll be establishing a beachhead into Juarez to help facilitate the counter-assault. They drove south through the green zone on Airport Road and then on East Paisano Drive. It really didn't seem that different from the drive Ned had taken to see Director Rodriguez the day before. There were no signs of conflict in the streets, but there were a lot of military vehicles on the road. Private Phillips told them that they were heading to the grounds of the El Paso Zoo, where the counter-assault into Juarez was being staged. As they got closer to the zoo, Ned could hear the sounds of battle. When the vehicle stopped, Captain Smith was waiting, dressed in his Class A dress uniform. "'What's the occasion, Captain?' asked Ned. "'I'll be going with you into Juarez,' the captain replied. "'I have a side mission that shouldn't delay you too much, and don't ask me what it is, you'll know soon enough.' "'Sounds like the fighting's still going on,' said Ned. "'They've already established a perimeter for the outpost in Juarez, but the damn CLA fighters keep trying to take it back.' Satellite imagery shows that they don't have the forces for an all-out assault unless they abandon at least one of the damn sites, but they keep sending in squads to get mowed down. They all went into a tent that had a map of both El Paso and Juarez on a table. Captain Smith motioned to the map. Now show me exactly where you want to start your search for Miss Madero's brother. Lisa looked at the map and then put her finger on an intersection near the Viaducto Diaz Ordaz. Right here is where our restaurant is. All right, said the captain. That will work just fine. We will be detouring here. He pointed at an avenue further south called the Ercito Nacional. The National Army Highway, said Ned. Is that some kind of joke? The captain glowered at Ned. I didn't name the road, Mr. Albrecht. We just need to get there. But it's practically in the opposite direction of where we need to go. Don't worry, Mr. Albrecht. It won't take too long. We'll have transportation. The captain then walked them outside and showed them an old beat-up purple Volkswagen Jetta with Mexican license plates. Chapter 33 There was another squad of CLA soldiers assaulting the beachhead while they were making their exit into Juarez. Ned thought he heard some bullets fly by the car as the CLA soldiers were taking pot shots at them. Fortunately, none of them hit. It wasn't long before they were all driving south. Captain Smith was driving, Private Phillips was in the front passenger seat, and Ned and Lisa were in the back. The car would have blended in perfectly in Juarez, except for the fact that there was hardly any traffic on the streets. The people must have been staying at home, or had already moved into El Paso, because it was like a ghost town. It took about 20 minutes to travel the four miles to the National Army Highway. Once there, they headed east. Get those binoculars out, Private ordered the captain, and tell me if you see anything up ahead. I take it this is part of your secret mission, Captain? asked Ned. Um, Captain? Private Phillips sounded like he didn't want to interrupt. I see something. Well, what is it, Private? Um, it, it looks like an army, sir. Chapter 34 Before long, Ned could begin to make out the army up ahead without the aid of binoculars. 
They were moving very slowly. It looked like they had several military-style combat vehicles, including five-ton trucks and the same kind of vehicle that Private Phillips had been using to ferry Ned around in El Paso. In addition to the vehicles, it looked like there were multiple columns of soldiers marching in line as far as the eye could see. They continued to drive slowly east until a shot was fired in their direction. Then, a voice from a bullhorn said, This is the El Paso Valley Militia. That was a warning shot. Get off the road or we'll consider you enemy combatants. Captain Smith then picked up the corded microphone that was part of the vehicle's radio communication system, flipped a switch on the dashboard that activated the public address system, and said, This is Captain Robert Smith of the United States Army. I have been sent to establish communication between your forces and the commanding general in El Paso in order that we might coordinate our strikes. There was a brief pause before the voice spoke again. Get out of the car and proceed on foot. Bring your credentials. Leave your weapons in the car. Okay, Ned, said the captain. Phillips and I are going to go and have a chat with these boys. You two come up to the front seat. If this goes sideways, I want you to take the car and proceed with your mission. If all goes well, however, I'll be back in a few minutes and we can decide how to proceed together. It didn't go sideways. Private Phillips came back to the car after about five minutes, hopped into the back seat, and told them to drive ahead. Once they reached the army, Phillips brought Ned and Lisa into the back of a truck that was the makeshift militia headquarters. Captain Smith and another man were looking over a map of Juarez. It might have been the same map the captain had showed them back in El Paso. Ned, you're here. Good. The captain turned away from the table. This is General Hirsch of the El Paso Valley Militia. Our satellite scans picked up their movement earlier this afternoon, but we didn't realize they were heading into Juarez until it was too late to establish contact. Ned knew about the independent militias throughout Texas, although he wasn't specifically familiar with any in the El Paso area. They were generally volunteer groups that trained in order to aid the government in times of need, or overthrow the government in times of tyranny. The men here were dressed mostly like ranch workers, but the general was wearing a uniform of sorts. This General Hirsch is Mr. Ned Albrecht, said the captain. He's on a secret mission for the president. Really? General Hirsch seemed very intrigued. Is it something to do with us? How can we help? It doesn't really have anything to do with your forces exactly, General, but we would appreciate if you could give him some space to do his work. It's important, and it'll be a lot more difficult once the main assault begins. The captain then looked to Ned. Do you have any questions for the General? How big is your force, General, and what exactly are you doing in Juarez? We've got 2,400 men and four battalions of 600 men each. We mustered this morning after the attack on Juarez and headed out after the president declared war on Mexico. We thought we should do our part. We made our way from Fabens, that's where we're headquartered, took the old border station at Socorro from the CLA forces there, and have been making our way downtown. Figured we run into the main CLA forces from behind, but we haven't found too many yet. Now that you're all here, I expect we'll have better intelligence. That's right, General, said Captain Smith. Ned has detailed information about the CLA headquarters, as does Miss Madero here. But first we need to figure out a few things. Exactly how long, General, will it take you to move your army here? The captain put his finger on the map at the location of the CLA headquarters. I expect if we start marching now, we could be there in less than an hour. That's good, said Captain Smith. Our tentative schedule calls for an assault at around 7 p.m. If your forces can assault the headquarters at the same time that the army forces in El Paso assault the dams and secure the border, we will be in business. Ned, that means you'll have a little over an hour to conduct your business. Will that be enough time? There's no way to be certain, Captain, but I'll tell you what, it'll have to be. Good man, said the Captain, and beamed approvingly. 
Phillips and I will be staying here with the militia. Will you and Miss Madero be okay on your own? I'm sure we'll make do, Captain. We were planning on just the two of us anyway. Ned paused for a moment. It would help if we got to keep the car. Of course you can have the car. Now, if there isn't anything else, we should start the briefing for the general, and then you two can be on your way. Captain, said General Hirsch. I know that they're on a secret mission, but if I might offer a man to go with them. Kevin, get on up here. A young man dressed like a cowboy and wearing a six-shooter stepped forward. This is my boy Kevin. He's good in a fight, knows his weapons, and went to the police academy in San Antonio before he decided to go to lawyer school out east. He'd be a fine addition to the team. Captain Smith smiled. Why, I think that's a fine idea. Chapter 35 Captain Smith gave General Hirsch a short briefing on the Chihuahuan Liberation Army's headquarters, with both Ned and Lisa supplying a few details about the different buildings. Lisa was especially knowledgeable about the internal layout and function of the warehouse complex. Most surprisingly was that, unless something had been added, there were no fortifications around the complex. All planning had gone into assaulting the border and the dam locations in El Paso, and not into defending their own city or base of operations. Their success at hiding the headquarters from the United States military somewhat explained the lack of fortification, but it's as if they never even contemplated the idea of an attack against them. With this lack of defense, even the militia's limited forces should be able to take control of the headquarters without too much trouble, assuming that most of the CLA forces were otherwise occupied. After the meeting, on their way back to the car, Ned took Captain Smith aside for a private conversation. I don't know why you accepted the General's son to be part of our mission so quickly. We don't really know anything about him, and I don't know how he can be an asset. You're in politics, son, the captain replied. I shouldn't have to tell you what a goodwill gesture can do. Look, we want General Hirsch to accept our help, and by accept our help, I mean follow our orders. If we accept his help in the form of taking his kid along for your mission, he's more likely to accept ours. Now that I understand. Ned looked again at Captain Smith. You're not like any soldier I've ever met before. Well, I wear a lot of hats. Today I'm an Army field captain, but I've worked for Army Intelligence, the NSA, and the CIA. It's a valuable skill to be adaptable. Now I'm sure that the boy will be fine. The captain looked over at Kevin, and then he walked over to the trunk of the car and opened it. There's an extra sat phone and weapons here. Are you going to need anything else for your mission? Ned surveyed the contents of the trunk. There were two assault rifles, two handguns, a box of grenades, walkie-talkies, an emergency radio, and the satellite phone. Ned was already carrying a handgun and a sat phone. I'm sure I can make do with all of this. All right then, Ned, we'll be assaulting the compound around seven if I haven't heard back from you before then. But I've got to tell you, it's going to be a coordinated attack. The U.S. Army will be taking the two dam sites and key border stations at the same time as our assault so there'll be no way to delay this thing once it gets rolling. The captain raised his hand in a salute. Safe travels, Ned. And you, Captain. Dueling Eagles Written by Chad Claybo Read by Derek Durlam Produced by Studio Conundrum Copyright 2017, Chad Claybo